The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the third chapter and the 18th verse. The 18th verse in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, really to understand this verse, as I'm going to show you, we must bear in mind the context. And the context really goes back to the 11th verse, at any rate, of this chapter. It, in a sense, goes back further to the very beginning. But the immediate context goes back, at any rate, to the 11th verse. But let me read from verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now there we have been reminded of the context. But this evening we are looking in particular at this 18th verse. Those who attend here regularly will recall that we've been looking at the other verses leading up to it. Now this is again one of these great and vitally important statements, a continuation of the statement made particularly in verses 16 and 17, and a statement which carries the statement of verses 16 and 17 yet further. Our Lord is still speaking to Nicodemus, and clearly he felt that he couldn't leave the statement as it was because uh, it could be misunderstood. And it is something which has been misunderstood throughout the centuries and is still being misunderstood. Now, our Lord, knowing that and knowing the readiness of mankind to misunderstand, goes out of his way to make this further statement in order to explain the position plainly and clearly to Nicodemus. It's very interesting to notice how this man, Nicodemus, to whom our Lord was speaking, has stopped speaking. At first, you remember, he was very ready to speak and to ask his questions and to say, perhaps with a smile upon his face, how can a man be born when he is old? Or how can these things be? But our Lord has now been opening out to him these heavenly things, displaying to him the truth about his person and his work, and working it out and bringing it to a focus in that great statement in the 16th verse with which we are all so familiar. 
And then he went on, as we saw in verse 17 last Sunday, to say, God sent not, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But you see, he can't leave it even at that. He has to go on and to make this further explanation, which we are going to look at this evening. Now the Bible tells us everywhere that sin is a terrible thing. And that the main effect of sin upon us is to blind our understanding. Sin, according to the Bible, is that which muddles us and confuses us and blinds us to the truth of God. And how abundantly plain is that when you consider the various ways in which the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is so frequently and so constantly misunderstood. If you were to take, make an examination tonight of the average person, go to almost anybody you like who is not a Christian and say, now what's your idea of the gospel? It would be astonishing to notice the answers that you'd get. People have done this and they've recorded their the answers that have been given. In spite of the fact that we have an open Bible and the thing set forth so plainly, there is nothing that is so misunderstood in the world this evening as the gospel which is outlined in this New Testament. Now that, I say, is nothing but a proof of what the Bible says about sin and about the effect of sin upon men. It clouds the mind, it muddles and confuses and though we are looking at words, we don't see what they say. We read our own prejudice into them, and we fail to get the true message. Now, what is still more interesting is that the number of possible misunderstandings is almost endless. It isn't just one misunderstanding. There are many misunderstandings of the gospel. And one man misunderstands it in one way and another in another. Indeed, what is still more remarkable is that the same men may change from one to the other. If you show him the fallacy of one, he'll switch right over to the other extreme and he'll begin to espouse that. That, I say, is the effect of sin upon us. And it was because he knew that our Lord went on like this explaining his great statement. I've reminded you that everybody thinks that he knows uh, all about John 3.16. It's the one verse everybody knows. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We all think we know that. Ah, we say that's the gospel. Not these arguments of the Apostle Paul, not all this talk about righteousness and justification and sanctification. The simple gospel of Jesus. That's good enough for me, says the man. I'm a plain man. I understand something like that. Well, I think we've already seen that he doesn't understand it. And that he seriously tends to misinterpret it. You see, it was for that reason that our Lord added the 17th verse. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why did he say that? Well, for this reason. He knew as he was speaking that Nicodemus thought that the main function 
of the Messiah when he came would be to judge and to condemn. And there are many people who think of God like that this evening, as I showed you last Sunday night. Their one idea of God is that he's some kind of horrible monster that is waiting to damn us and to condemn us all. Our Lord says, God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If you but knew it, he says, the heart of God is a heart of love. Very well, we've seen that correction. But unfortunately, that is not the only misunderstanding of God. There is another, and it's the exact opposite. You convince people that God is not this kind of monster and of tyrant, and then they will probably switch right over to the other extreme. And they will say, ah, yes, I see it now. Then you say, God is love. Very well, all is well. God is love, and because God is love, we've got nothing to worry about at all. Everything's going to be all right. It was because he knew of that second misunderstanding that our Lord added this 18th verse. Look at it. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now then, let me put this to you. Let me show you, let me extract the principles which our Lord teaches us in this momentous verse. It's a part of the great statement still of John 3.16. We don't understand John 3.16 unless we understand verses 14 and 15 and 17 and 18 as well. There is nothing more dangerous and calamitous than to isolate John 3.16. It's got to be taken in the full context that our Lord himself has given to it. Very well, what are the principles? Here they are. Here's the first. Our Lord does not pronounce a universal salvation. I start with that, I say, because there are so many who do believe in a universal salvation. You are familiar with the statements? They say God is love, and because God is love, obviously nobody can be punished. If God is love, they say, how could he possibly go on punishing anybody to all eternity? The fact that God is love, as he says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son... Very well, they say, we're all going to be right at the end. We're all going to be forgiven. We're all going to be saved. You see how we switch over. Last week, God as the tyrant waiting to condemn us. Now, God as the benevolent, indulgent father who smiles indiscriminately upon all. And it doesn't matter very much whether what you do. It's all going to be right at the end. God is going to smile on us and say, it doesn't matter, I forgive it all. And everybody is going to spend eternity in heaven. And no one at all is going to experience punishment. No, that's uh, given a title, you know, theologically. That is called universalism. But it doesn't matter about the term. There are many people who believe that, though they've never heard the term universalism. 
They say, of course, I'm not bothering with all this theology and so on. I just know that God is love, and because he's love, that must be true. There are thousands of people, not to say millions, in the world tonight who are acting on that assumption. They never go to a place of worship because they say, God's love will see me through and everything will be all right. They don't bother themselves. They never study the New Testament. They've never really tried to understand this. They've made no effort. They're relying upon this universal love of God, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of men, and it's all going to be all right in the end. God's love will cover everything. Well, now, you see the importance of uh, considering this 18th verse of the third chapter of John's Gospel. It's our Lord speaking. And you notice what comes out at a very superficial, cursory glance at the verse. There are two he's here. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. There are already two persons, two he's. There's a division, a separation. And again, it's brought out in another word. He that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not, believeth, believeth not. Two persons again. And they're the same persons. As we have already seen in the two he's. Of course, it's already there, isn't it, in John 3.16. But of course, we are so carried away, you see, by the the glory of the language and the diction that we don't notice it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And at once there's an implication. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Ah, there's another man who doesn't believe. Yes, but you see what a wise teacher our Lord was. He doesn't take anything for granted. He knows that men are ready to take John 3.16 and not see the implication of whosoever, so he brings it out himself in verse 18. He, he, believeth, believeth not. There is nothing in the New Testament, there is nothing in the whole Bible to say that God re regards humanity as a mass. You see, people misunderstand this term, world. God so loved the world. Good enough, says the man. I'm one of them. I'm in the world. Therefore, I'm all right. God has loved the world. But that isn't God's way of dealing. God deals with men individually, one by one, whosoever. He, you, I... We, we are not saved as a race. We are not saved as a nation. We are not saved as a company. We are not saved as a family. One by one. I'm never tired of putting it in this form. I think our blessed Lord has put it so clearly once and forever. When he says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in there, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. He says, you know, the entry into this life of mine is through a straight. It's a very narrow kind of gate of entrance 
Indeed, I believe it's a turnstile. And a turnstile only admits one at a time. You can't go through a turnstile as a family together. You've got to separate there one by one. And that's how God deals with men. It's he, whosoever. It's individualistic. It comes to us one by one. Now, I know the modern world doesn't like that. We are living in a time when the individual is being sadly and tragically forgotten. We are all believers in the mob and in the mass. And we want to do everything in great crowds. But you see, it's thoroughly unbiblical and it's absolutely false to the facts of life. We are not born in crowds and we won't die in crowds. And we won't meet God in crowds. We stand before him one by one. It's individual. It's personal. It's direct. And the result of this is, do you see, that there is this great division of mankind into two ultimate groups. He that believeth in him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Very well, I say, here's mankind tonight. There is a fundamental division into two groups. The not condemned, the condemned. And every one of us in this chapel at this moment belongs to one or the other of these two groups. And you know it's the only thing that really matters in this world tonight. How superficial we are in our thinking. You listen to the conversations of people. I've been listening to them and even today. And you know how we divide them. These men have come out on strike. Says one class about those and they're saying the same thing about them. They think that's the vital division. It isn't. As a matter of fact, both those classes, if they're not Christians, are in the same group. They belong to the condemned. No, no. It isn't our political and social divisions and distinctions that matter. There's something much more radical and much more fundamental than that. And a man who can get excited about these other superficial distinctions is just a man who's showing that he doesn't know how to think in biblical terms. He hasn't seen himself under God. He's looking at the human level only. He's looking horizontally. He's never seen that all men stand alone and separately before this almighty God. And that there's only one radical division. The not condemned, the condemned. The sheep, the goats. The citizens of the narrow way. The citizens of the broad way. Those who belong to the kingdom of God. Those who belong to the kingdom of the devil. Those who are going to heaven. Those who are going to hell. That's the division. There is no universal salvation here. You say, I believe in the love of God. The Son of God who spoke these words to Nicodemus was the incarnation of God's love. I wouldn't dare say things like this on my own authority. I have no more right to say these than anybody else. I am just holding before you the words of the Son of God. If anybody knew anything about the love of God in this world, here is the one. And this is what he says. No, you're not all going to be saved. He that believeth, he that believeth not. Not condemned, condemned. 
A radical, fundamental division. My dear friend, while all I want to do this evening is to hold this question before you. Which of these two companies do you belong to? You're in one or the other. Aristotle pointed out centuries ago that there is no mean between two opposites. There is no neutrality in this matter of our relationship to God. We are either definitely on one side or the other. You can't half believe and half not believe. You either believe or you don't. And that decides and determines where you are. It's the thing that pronounces it. Which is it? You can't sit neutrally in the gallery and look on as a spectator. Every human being is faced with this final decision, and it's one side or the other. He, he, believeth, believeth not, not condemned, condemned. No universal salvation. That's the very lie of the devil to lull our souls into a state of false security and false peace. Listen to the words of the Son of God as he holds you face to face with this final division of men into two ultimate groups. But come, let's go on to the second principle. While it is right and true to say that God did not send his Son to judge the world, his coming into the world is nevertheless a judgment of the world. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He's not been sent to judge, but the fact that he's come does judge. Now that's, uh, that's clear, isn't it? I'm not contradicting myself. It's our Lord who's saying it. The motive of his coming was not judgment, but his coming results in judgment. How? Well, here again is a very important matter for us. You see, our response to him, our reaction to him at once reveals the whole truth about us. My response to the Lord Jesus Christ and his message reveals perfectly plainly tonight and pronounces what is my view of God, of myself, of sin, of my eternal destiny. If a man tells me that he's not at all interested in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, he is telling me exactly what he believes about all those great matters. He is telling me that he's really not interested in God at all, and if he is interested in God, he says it's all right, God's love, and I have nothing to worry about. He is telling me that he really isn't uh, interested in human nature as such, that he's living for this life and for this world. He doesn't believe in what is called sin. He believes that can be explained in terms of psychology. If he's interested in it at all, he just lives for the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's telling me all about himself. He's not interested in Jesus Christ. He prides himself on that. He is telling me that he's absolutely blinded by sin. When a man is ignorant of many subjects, he's not aware of serious possibilities. 
Children are never aware of danger. That's why we have to protect them. They're fascinated by the fire and they want to go and put their hands there. So we put up guards. They don't know. They said, there's no danger. It's their ignorance that makes them say that. There are people walking about with terrible diseases. They don't know it. And even if it's pointed out, they dismiss it. It's their ignorance that makes them do it. There are people who are always saying, all's well, don't get excited. Facts prove that they're wrong. Their optimism was based on their ignorance. Oh, I could illustrate that endlessly. It's exactly the same with regard to this all-important and vital matter. You see, our Lord, by just coming and preaching and doing what he did, is judging us, everyone, because our reaction and our response proclaims what we are. But this works, of course, in another way. And this is what makes this so serious and so alarming. There's an inevitable logical deduction here which we simply cannot evade. It began in the 14th verse where our Lord said this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He then repeats it in verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that in order that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See the same implication? He goes on in the 17th verse. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. There was no need, as I proved to you, to send the Son into the world to condemn the world, for the world was already condemned by the law and by the original sin, and death had come in. The condemnation was there. Why has he sent him? In order to deliver. Yes, but you see, the implication has been running through the statement all along. And the implication is this. That the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming into this world and all he did is God's way of providing salvation for us. I indicated to you last Sunday evening that it is even God's only way. There was no other way whereby even God could save us. But God has done this. It is God's way. It is the only way. And therefore, you see, it becomes a source of judgment at once. Because if we reject the only way of escape, there is nothing left for us but perdition and being lost. It's inevitable. Now, God didn't send his son in order to condemn us. He sent him to provide the way of escape. Yes, but if you don't avail yourself of it, it becomes a judgment on you. And it settles and seals your judgment to all eternity. In other words, our Lord makes it perfectly clear in this 18th verse. He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There is a man in that burning house and he can't get down anyhow. There he is confined. Everything's on fire. Suddenly a fire escape comes and it's offering itself there at the window. If he doesn't step onto it, there's no other alternative. He just perishes in the flames. 
And the very offer of the fire escape, as it were, becomes a judgment upon that man. Here is the crisis, the critical moment. What's he going to do about this? There's no other. Here it is suddenly. If he misses, if he refuses, he seals his own fate. Now that is what our Lord is saying here. While God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, The coming of the Son into the world is a judgment upon the world. Our Lord himself said that later on in this selfsame gospel at the end of the ninth chapter. It's there in these momentous words. He says, For judgment I am come into this world that they which see not might see, not might see and that they which see might be made blind. And then in the twelfth chapter he goes on and puts it in another way again and says, that he hasn't come into this world to judge, that he judges no men. He says, if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that, judge, that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Now that's just an elaboration of what he says here in this 18th verse of this third chapter. And therefore I lay that down as my second proposition. Well now that brings me to the third proposition. Which is equally important and vital for us. How is it then that we make of the Christ of God our own condemnation. He wasn't sent to condemn us. But it's possible for us to make of him, as it were, a condemnation. How do we do so? Oh, there's nothing more vital than this. And he explains it perfectly. Here it is. If I hold any view of him, except the true one, except the one that he taught and indicated himself, I turn the Savior of the world into the source of my condemnation. How can I do that? Well, I'll tell you. Here are two ways at least. If I regard the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as nothing but just a moral teacher, I turn him into the source of my condemnation. Now, there are many people who do that. They say they don't believe in his death on the cross. They don't believe in this theology of blood. They're not interested in this communion service. Ah, oh, they said Jesus of Nazareth obviously was just a great religious genius, a great moral teacher. And he propounded some of the greatest moral maxims that the world has ever listened to. He's ahead of all the Greek philosophers, the great moral teacher and instructor. And I'm not interested in your being saved and in your rebirth and things of that kind. I believe, says this man, that Jesus is the incomparable teacher. And I believe in his teaching. I believe in the Sermon on the Mount and I want it applied. I believe that's the basis of a social gospel. And I want men to apply that. And if they do, you'll put an end to war. And you'll put an end to industrial strife and every other form of strife. That's what I believe in. Jesus is to me the great moral teacher. Very well, my friend, if you believe that, I say that you're turning him into a source of condemnation. 
Because as certainly as you're sitting in this chapel at this moment, you'll never carry out the Sermon on the Mount. We've all failed to carry out something much lower than the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments. We fail to carry out something much lower even than the Ten Commandments, that is our own moral code, the standard that we set for ourselves. No man who is honest is pleased and satisfied with himself. How easy and glibly we talk about Jesus as the great teacher and moral pundit, as it were. You have to face it, I say, and if you face his teaching, it will damn you. You'll never keep it. The Sermon on the Mount puts us all out of court, every one of us. And so it is, you see, that men in their blindness and in their ignorance turn him who came to save and who was sent by his Father to save into a source of judgment and of condemnation. It's exactly the same with those who regard him as just a great example. Isn't it amazing that people can do this sort of thing? Ah, they say the Christ of God is the great example. He's a pattern for us. He walked before us and we're to follow after him and I'm going to do it, says someone. You know, if only people who talked like that really tried to do it. They discover within 24 hours that it's the most hopeless task in the world to follow Christ, to imitate Christ. Oh, of course, there are great terms, the imitation of Christ. I know it sounds so marvelous, so idealistic, so wonderful. I say, go and do it. Go and try it. The men who tried it honestly and thoroughly have been the very first to con confess their utter and complete and miserable failure. If Christ is only a teacher and an example to you, he condemns you and damns you completely. I say that we turn him into judgment and condemnation. If we regard him in any way except the way that he himself indicates. Listen, he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Well, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He's gone on saying it as I pointed out from the 11th verse. But here he summarizes it in a very wonderful way. What are we supposed to believe? How are we to believe in him then? Well, he says, believe in his name. Believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What's this mean? Well, that's just a New Testament way of telling us that we've got to believe in him and everything that he stands for. It's put very beautifully in the third chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. You remember the story of Peter and John going up to the temple to pray one afternoon, and suddenly they see a, man, a lame man sitting at the entrance to the, of the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were about to pass him by and to go into the prayer meeting when the man asked for alms. And Peter and John looking at him said unto him, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he did. And he went walking and leaping and praising God into the temple. And the people came rushing and said, what is this? 
And they thought that Peter and John were some gods, as it were. And Peter said, no, don't look at us. It isn't I who have done it. It isn't John who has done it. It's the Christ whom we are preaching. His name, through faith in his name, hath given this man this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's it. And the same Peter preaching before the authorities who were trying to stop him preaching in the name of Christ put it like this. He said, I can't stop preaching this Jesus because there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. It's the only name that spells salvation. It's the only name that gives deliverance. The power is in the name. You see, even we use that in a sense today, don't we? We say, now if you're ill, you go to such and such a doctor. He's got a marvelous name. What do you mean by that? You are, you say, that man's name means understanding, diagnostic ability. He's an expert at treatment. Trust him. He's got a marvelous name. Yes, that's your way of describing his greatness as a doctor. And that's what this name means here. Why do people turn him into a source of judgment and condemnation? Ah, he says, because they do not believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. What's it mean? Well, he's already told us. His person. He's not only Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Son of God. He's not only a man. He's God. He's the Word made flesh dwelling among us. You notice how he put it. No man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. He says, I am the only begotten Son of God. He's no man. He's God-man. The incarnation. That's believing on him. Do you know who he is? Do you realize that God has sent his only Son into this world about your salvation? That this is unique in history. Don't talk to me about your Mohammed, your Buddha, your Confucius. He's their men. This is God-man. The unique event of history. Believing on the name. But not only the person. His work. His grace. What he came into the world to do. What is it? Not simply to work miracles. It's this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's come to die. He's come to give his soul a sacrifice for sin. He's come to bear the sins of many. He's come that God might make him to be sin for us. That God might lay on him the iniquity of us all. That's why he's come. Believing on the name. His saving work. His redeeming work. That he is the one whom God has set up as a propitiation for our sins. God's way of deliverance. And what he's telling Nicodemus here, you see, is this. That if you believe in him in any way except that, he becomes your condemnation. In other words, if you don't realize 
that your condition and mine in sin is such that nothing but the death of the Son of God on Calvary's hill can save us and deliver us. You are making of him your condemnation. If you believe anything about him, I don't care how complimentary it is to him. If you believe anything about him, short of this, that he is the Son of God, the only begotten, the eternal Son of God who became man and flesh in order to taste death for us and to bear the punishment of our sins and to die our death and to keep the law for us and thus to reconcile us to God. If you believe anything short of that, he's your condemnation. For that is why he came, as he's been telling us all along. God gave his only begotten Son, as we saw to the death of the cross, and its pain and its suffering, and the bearing of the guilt and punishment of sin, the making of righteousness. That's what he means by believing on the name of the only begotten Son of God. So you see how we can turn him whom God sent to save into a source of condemnation. And that brings me to my last point, which is this. Our relationship to him and our attitude towards him here in this world determines our eternal destiny. Now I'm not saying this. Listen. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. That's the word. Already. Now that means one thing only, that our eternal destiny is settled in this life and in this world. And it's this is the thing that at the center of it, our believing or not believing on his name. What our Lord is saying here, in other words, I can put like this. Our judgment is not going to be postponed until the great day of judgment. Our judgment is decided and determined already in this world. What happens on the great day of judgment is just the pronouncement of the sentence, the promulgation of the verdict. Did you notice how our Lord put it in that figure which I read to you at the beginning out of the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel? We are not told there that at the great day of judgment we shall be called up one after another and the case against us put forward and the defense. No, no. The first thing that happens is this. He divides them into sheep and goats. The sheep on the right, the goats on the left, they're already divided. And all that happens on that great day is the promulgation of the sentence. It is while we are in this life and in this world that our eternal fate and destiny is decided and determined. There is no teaching in the Bible about a second chance. None at all. 
Not a single instance. I defy you to give me a single verse or a single statement that indicates it. Not one. There is no second chance. There is no second opportunity. There is no ultimate, complete, universal salvation for all. Already is condemned already. As you go out of this world, your fate is already settled. And this is the thing that indicates which it is. If you have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God, you are condemned already. But I thank God that I can use the same word on the other side. If you do believe on the name of the only begotten Son, you are saved already. You don't wait until you die to be saved. You don't wait until you die to be a Christian. You can believe now. You can be saved now. You can begin to rejoice now. Already it works both sides. Condemned already, saved already. And thank God it is something that you can know already. The joy of salvation is not confined to the next world. It can begin here and now. Augustus, top lady, saw this so clearly that he ventured to say, The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Philip Doddridge, a contemporary of Augustus Toplady, puts it in his way by saying this, "'Tis done, the great transactions done! I am my Lord, and he is mine. Tis done already!' Isaac Watts in the same century puts it like this. Some of us were singing his hymn this morning. He says, the men of grace have found glory begun below. Celestial fruit on earthly ground from faith and hope may grow. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we walk the heavenly fields or tread the golden streets. Already, my dear friend, look at this great word and see its significance for you this evening. I say we're all in one or the other of these two groups. Which is it? If you die unbelieving, you're already condemned. And you'll have no opportunity of saying anything. At the day of judgment, the sentence will be pronounced. But equally I say that if you realize your sin and your hopelessness in the sight of this holy God and believe this message that God so loved 
You that he sent his son to die for you and your sins. And you cast yourself entirely upon him. I tell you, the moment you do so, you are saved already. Now. Well, very well. Settle it now. Do it now. Today is the day of salvation. The Christ of God is looking upon you. If you go to him, he won't refuse you. He has said, him, whosoever that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Well, hurry to him. Go to him. Cast yourself into his arms and upon his love and his mercy. And be saved already. And begin to enjoy the fruit of heaven, even here in this world of time. Do it now. Amen.